You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hi, I'm real pleased to have with us today Kashal Majmador, the Chief Investment Officer of Ridgewood Investments, a BusinessWeek.com Top 50 Independent Advisor. Uh, Ken, my good friend and partner, so glad to have you with us today. Let's get right into it, and uh, why don't you tell our listeners what, what should they be doing if they're trying to figure out how much money they need to be financially secure? Uh, thanks, Noah. It's great to uh, join you here today, and uh, glad to uh, be a part of this uh, podcast series, and glad to share our knowledge in the areas uh, uh, that might be helpful to various business owners as they think about uh, their financial alternatives. Uh, it's actually interesting, you know, I've worked with a lot of people and as you get often older or when you look at an, a life event like an exit, uh, people, that what I find experience-wise is that people actually don't really know how much money they need. Uh, but there is a way to sort of figure that out. And the way that I generally recommend to people, uh, in fact, we have some tools, uh, some budgeting tools that we send to people so uh, the first part of the exercise is to take one of these budgeting tools or even something as simple as a spreadsheet and really try to capture uh, your expected expenses. Uh, and the way that we do it in some of our sheets is we actually divide these expenses into two different categories. The first category is what we would call non-discretionary expenses. So these are the expenses that you have to have uh, and the things like uh, tuition or rent um, and health costs and things like that would fall into that category, the non-discretionary. And then you also have a second category, which is discretionary expenses. So these are the things that you like to have ideally, and that would include uh, you know, a budget for eating out or entertainment or vacation and travel and things like that. Uh, so I think that typically the best way to figure out how much people need is really to look back at what they've been spending and divide, you know, do it on a detailed basis each month, looking at uh, kind of your budget, say over a typical past year, and then sort of project that forward. Um, I think a lot of times when people do that exercise, if they do it meticulously, um, they're often surprised that the the actual result may be different than maybe what they would have guessed. Uh, but I think that that's a good exercise for most people to do, and often it's helpful for people who may be uh, not used to doing things like that to work with an experienced uh, financial professional uh, such as, you know, Freedom and your approach to comprehensive financial planning to sort of help that process go as smoothly as possible. And then during that process, let's say you've figured out you've got about $12,000 a month of, you know, non-discretionary stuff, stuff that just comes in the door every month whether you like it or not. 
And then there's another 20000 of discretionary expenses between the cars and the travel and the entertainment and the fun stuff you're doing. So I'm spending 360 a year, uh, net of taxes. You know, now what? Now, you know, I'm, I'm 55 years old. Do I need it for 50 years? Do I, do I have to account for inflation? Do I have to account for investment performance? How do you think those two things weigh in on someone's decision? Well, yeah, no, clearly you do need to account for all of those things, but I guess that would be the second part of the exercise. So in part one, which is what we were just talking about, you're actually looking at your current costs and you're solving or trying to figure out what your budget is, both discretionary and non-discretionary. And, and incidentally, the reason that it's good to distinguish between the two is because to the extent that you're going to the second part of the exercise, which is now solving for that type of a cash flow going forward as your situation transitions from one phase of life to another, uh, you, you can obviously the non-discretionary part is essentially non-negotiable for the most part or, or maybe only bendable in the long run, whereas you might have a little bit more play on some of the discretionary parts and doing the exercise actually helps you identify where maybe the low-hanging fruit is on, on that side of the ledger. Uh, but on the other side of the ledger, of course, is a is a even more um, involved exercise of trying to say, okay, now that I know how much I need in terms of my cash flow to cover my discretionary and non-discretionary expenses, what do I have on the asset side to meet that uh, that need uh, for income, uh, passive income, let's say, if you're you know you're talking about moving into a phase of life where you're going to live off or harvest off of the value that you have accumulated or created. So that's a whole different um, exercise, and that's one that definitely needs the input of an experienced uh, financial team, uh, and particularly someone who knows investment asset classes and investment returns and is able to design an approach because you know, there's multiple ways to try to solve for that cash flow, and each possibility, each possible option has many different risk and reward parameters associated with it. So that's kind of a multivariate optimization problem, so to speak, and it's one that's really best done uh, with a team of folks who really know not only the finance side of things but also the investment side of things and, and you know, know, um, you know what the options are. And, but, and obviously that's not going to be a static strategy. It also changes over time. Um, and the other, the other reason why it's really important is because depending on how you do the strategy, it will drive uh, possibly needing changes in one form or another. You know, you might find in one situation that the assets are more than enough to generate that income. In other situations where that may not be the case, you know, you need to iterate and go back and see where the moving pieces are and where you can try to optimize it so that, you know, um, it, it's the best it can be in a given situation for a given client and given the cash flow that they need and the assets that they have available. So with some of your clients that are living off of their assets, what was the experience like for them during the, the market downturn? And do you feel like some of those clients that felt financially secure, maybe they had some insecurity or, uh, you know, did, did people's math change of how much they actually need to feel comfortable? Well, in our case, it didn't. So I, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, largely uh, people, you know, that we have been managing money for, we had, you know, have completed through the, the down cycle and the subsequent rebound, which, 
you know, in my experience, I mean, when markets go down, they also always rebound. So I think the key trick there is to make sure that your investment strategy doesn't get compromised or essentially changed at the worst possible time. You know, in our case, we plan for cash flows, you know, going out for the next five to seven years. We never expose those to market risk and or minimize the market risk that they're exposed to. And I think that that should be part of any sensible cash flow strategy. So if, if you do that, if you follow some of those basic sensible um, and somewhat conservative rules, you really shouldn't be in a position where the market falls and all of a sudden you know, you're, you're forced to worry or forced to panic and then switch your strategy around. That's obviously the wrong time to do it. Uh, so now in our case, you know, we, we, I think, did a decent job of giving people portfolios that could withstand that, um, you know, which also makes sense because actually if you look at the history of markets, I tell all of our clients up front, you know, when we try to educate them on market history and what they can expect that, you know, one out of every four years, 25% of the time, markets fall. And sometimes they fall a little, sometimes they fall a lot. The good news is that they also always recover, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's not obviously every fourth year, but it can be two years out of eight uh, in a row. So we know that the market is going to fall at roughly that frequency. Uh, history teaches us that. And so, you, you know, we have to prepare for it, and that's one of the key things that we do as an investment advisor is to try to design portfolios that can – you know, succeed in a variety of market environments uh, and under a variety of circumstances as long as the client sticks to their long-term plan. I've found that to be the case. So in talking about that type of long-term planning and what goes into the emotional considerations that people have to be conscious of when being a long-term investor, one of the most significant changes during the exit planning process and transitioning from earning money or wealth accumulation to spending money, or what we call wealth utilization, is a, a real difficulty in a lot of uh, the mindsets for people who are so used to creating value with their own efforts. And here they are now with this you know, pile of, of liquidity that's getting redeployed in a variety of ways, and maybe it's uh, you know the value creation or, the, or utilizing those assets. It's a very different experience. Maybe you could talk to that. What, how do people get prepared for that, and, and what frame of reference might they want to adopt? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that preparation clearly helps you. Uh, I think that one of the issues that certainly we've encountered, uh, I'm sure you have seen this as well, is that in a lot of cases people haven't prepared at all, uh, or minimally, and so they really have no clue what to expect, and then it's sort of a big transition. Um, I think one of the advantages of working with people well ahead of uh, an exit event is is you know, obviously multifold. One is that it gives you a lot of guidance and a lot of coaching in order in terms of what to expect, so that the transition is actually smooth. And obviously, another big area of focus that you know a lot of folks in this area, including yourself, do is how to actually maximize the value that you get. And both of those things are, I think, um, extremely valuable. So it really, if you do it right, it shouldn't be a situation where you suddenly have this sort of 
life-altering event just drop down on you. you. You've prepared for it, and the transition will be much smoother as a result. But that having been said, you know, clearly it's a big change. Uh, you know, on the emotional side, that's probably more something that, you know, a coach and a financial person can help you with. But I can speak on the financial or investing side, uh, the fact that, you know, from a financial point of view, I think of assets, whether they be a business that you built with your own, you know, sweat and equity or passive assets like you own in, the, in, in securities markets, to me, they're essentially fungible. And if I were to look at it purely logically and rationally as a business owner, uh, I view transition as basically taking a concentrated ownership position in a business and probably in many cases it's a business that's really done well and they've created tremendous value, probably more value than they might have done in any other way, including working somewhere. Um, but now that they're exiting for whatever the reasons are, we're going to take those assets that are generated and try to efficiently deploy them in other assets. And certainly there will be income assets, but you know, also attractively uh, there will be business assets. Um, and the difference is that you know, in your own business, you have to obviously work hard, and any time something goes wrong, as most of our listeners can probably relate to, ultimately the buck stops with them. Well, now we're going to transition their ownership to publicly traded, or often publicly traded or more diversified set of assets, including many good businesses. Uh, but the benefit to that is while they will get a lot of the economic gains and growth of those businesses over time, they're not responsible like they are in their own business for keeping the lights on and making sure everybody shows up and dealing with every fire or emergency that comes up. And obviously one of the good attractive aspects of that is that in that phase of life when they're trying to maybe have a greater balance between um, working and generating money and actually having time to enjoy the fruits of their hard work over many years, that type of an approach where we're investing in other businesses that are professionally run uh, can obviously be much better from a lifestyle point of view, yet it still preserves a lot of the benefits of business ownership. But that is that just because you sell your business doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, you can't be a business owner. Well, you can be a business owner and you can get a lot of the benefits of being a business owner through securities markets, but with the crucial difference that you're giving up that control, and you're also giving up all the headaches that go with that. And I think that's a big benefit for, for people in a certain phase of life. And I think a lot of times in deal structure, that has an influence. Uh, some people don't mind selling to a private equity firm where they give up control, but they still have the responsibility, and other people, it drives them nuts, so they'd rather sell to a strategic acquirer and get rid of the whole thing, and hopefully they'll redeploy their assets it's, to some extent in, in publicly traded securities where they'll continue on as a business owner, but they won't have those headaches. And then right. how does that play out in the portfolios that you advise on? Do you see that certain business sellers are looking for concentrated stock positions or, or kind of more focused bets uh, based on well, your expertise? In general, I think that there's a, there's a nice mix of you want to have a certain extent of diversification. Uh, so it's ne it never makes sense to put all your eggs in only a couple of baskets. But I do think that probably most portfolios in the world, to you know, to an extent, you know, may have an, a level of diversification which may be more than they need. And I think that when you own businesses 
whether they be the business that you own directly or a handful of businesses that you own indirectly through, through passive positions or the public markets. I mean, at the end of the day, owning a business is owning a business. And that's, I think, one big differentiator between our approach, which is modeled after the Warren Buffett view of investing and maybe the conventional view, which is we look at investing very similar to the way probably most of those owners out there look at investing in their own company. So every time we buy a position in a company, whether it's publicly traded or not, we're really looking to analyze that as a business owner would analyze owning the whole company. And such a small change in, in the way we look at it actually leads to very large differences in terms of what we ultimately end up doing and the ultimate results that we end up generating. So I think that a lot of the business owners that might be listening to this or reading this online will probably be able to relate more to our approach, which is really one of saying, how can we own good businesses that we want to own for the long run through these other alternatives? Uh, and that's really not so different from the analysis that all, all our owners would do when they were looking at maybe an expansion in their own business or buying a company that they want to invest in for their current company. Uh, I think actually investing when it's done well is very business-like and the thought process and the analysis that we do is not that dissimilar from the thought process or, or analysis that many of these business owners would already be familiar with. Let's kind of change gears and, and talk about taxes. And maybe you could describe what strategies your wealthiest clients use to try and minimize the income taxes that they're paying. Sure. Well, I mean, a, a lot of times, uh, you know, there's some basic strategies and then there's some advanced strategies. And I guess the first point I'd make is investing well is a distinct question that you know, a lot of times people chase tax savings and then they actually invest badly to, to get tax savings. So I wouldn't necessarily be an advocate of that, but I do see that all the time. Uh, so many times things are done in the name of taxes that end up being terrible from an economic point of view, and there's a lot of pitfalls there that one would really want to avoid before we even get into the question of what to do to kind of minimize your taxes. But then when you get into the, directly the tax minimization itself, I mean, there are strategies that you can do even before you sell your business, you know, well before. Um, one common one is, you know, how your retirement plan is structured. In certain types of companies, which are more closely held with smaller staff, a type of retirement plan called a defined benefit plan, of which, you know, we've helped many of our clients set up uh, those types of plans when it's appropriate to their situation, can be a great way to defer uh, you know, a significant amount of their income uh, from taxes, which lets them build substantial value in these retirement plans that can be part of the mix once they actually retire and I mean, often an exit is associated with that type of an event. So definitely considering tax deferral plans, including the defined benefit plan uh, is, and even the 401k plan to a lesser extent, is definitely a, a piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then, you know, in many cases, you can get into more advanced strategies when you're talking about taxes, which, you know, really aren't in the scope of this discussion, but things like for a substantial business, uh, substantial, you know, small company or middle-sized middle, middle -sized company, things like captive insurance companies um, and employee stock ownership plans can also be part of the mix. Um, 
and these are more advanced strategies obviously. And just for completeness, I should also mention you know, municipal bonds where the interest isn't taxed. Uh, there's a lot of pros and cons to them, but certainly that would be something to have a conversation about, and that should be in the mix. Uh, as well as actually, you know, what, one thing that people don't really focus on is that capital gains rates are much lower uh, than um, ordinary income rates. And so one way to actually save and defer taxes is simply similar to our portfolio approach, which again is similar to the way Buffett invests, is simply to not have too much turnover in your portfolio. That is, if you can find, uh, you know, a smaller number of great businesses that you can buy at a good price, and hold on to for the long term. You know, the nice thing is that the companies can build up that value and you're never really paying any taxes on it until, you know, much later. So it can be a compounding vehicle. And then when you eventually sell, you're paying long-term capital gains at least at today's 15% rate, which is a lot more tax efficient than, um, you know, than having a high turnover portfolio that generates a lot of ordinary income. Yeah. Those are all great recommendations. So when people are, you know, running their business, they're likely to have some team of advisors in place that they've been working with or they're running their money on their own or their wealth is so concentrated in their business that they're not focused on who's helping them. Uh, but, you know, usually during an exit plan, I find owners are thinking about building a team and how to place people on that team. So what should they look for in their money person? you know, in the, in the person that's going to help them with their investments, with their financial planning, you know, give us some descriptions. Obviously, uh, your experiences on the money management side, maybe you could, could start with that and maybe get a little broader and, and work backwards. Sure. Well, no, I'd be happy to address that. Um, well, I think, you know, it'd be nice if we lived in a world where people were very strategic about how they did things, but the reality, as we all know, is that everybody's really busy, and often people are so busy just fighting the fires that arise and just trying to do the work that's in front of them that they often don't have the time or have the or they don't feel that they have the time to focus on actually having a high quality team around them uh and ultimately of course i mean one has a lot of examples of this it, you know it can end up being very costly so i would first of all say to somebody that it's very important to have a team and you know having high-quality uh, members of that team will really pay a lot of dividends if you take the time to consult with somebody who can help you put that type of a team together. Uh, you know, that can pay a lot of dividends uh, going forward. Uh, but now specifically, let's make the assumption that you do have a team and you're, you know, you're trying to identify specifically on the investment management side uh, who to take advice from and who would be good. Um, I definitely have some thoughts on that. Um, so the first thing I would say is that even though I'm an investment manager or an investment advisor, um, it's been my experience that, you know, the, mo the vast majority, you know, certainly over 50% of the folks that call themselves money managers or investment managers, um, I, I believe don't really do a good job. And, um, you know, one of the reasons is, as I'm sure many of our readers might be able to relate to, is that the, the quote-unquote business is full of people who really are just salespeople pretending to be professionals. And um, that can, uh, you know, have devastating consequences if you're not really aware that really all you're doing is dealing with a salesperson with, with certain 
conflicts of interest and maybe not the type of professional background that you really would need in somebody. So, you know, being aware of that, you really need to sort out and try to weed out the people that are sort of more just sales folks. Uh, but what I would look for in somebody who is managing my money is, is, a, is a handful of things. One is I would definitely scrutinize their background in terms of both educationally and professionally. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people who are pretty smart and savvy and intelligent end up seeking advice from people that maybe aren't nearly as smart or savvy as intelligent as they are, and I think that that ends up being a mistake. So I do think that one should, you know, try to screen for those qualities and however, you know, makes sense to them, whether that may be looking at the person's, you know, academic credentials or their work experience, uh, certain financial designations. Uh, you know, I'm a CFA, as you know, which stands for Chartered Financial Analyst, and um, that's certainly a, a kind of a credential that's recognized worldwide and involves a number of um, a number of criteria. The one thing I'd be uh, cautioning people on, on by the designation side is that in this financial industry, because it's so sales-driven, there's a lot of kind of you know fake designations that have been created just so people can add letters to their name. So it's not enough to just see that a person has a bunch of designations, but really to scrutinize those. And the two that I think are the most respected are the CFA and the and the CFP. Um, and then if you see others, anything other than those two, then you know I'd suggest you just do some due diligence and research to see what the criteria was. So one is the background of the person. Um, the second is you know I would also look at you know what successes they've had, their ethics, um, you know, and try to probe those issues as much as possible. So that that would be another aspect. Um, a third aspect is you know, what's their philosophy? You know, in our case, we have a investment philosophy which is modeled after Warren Buffett, uh, which which is called value investing. And the reason that we have that philosophy is that we have found that over the long run, uh, the track record shows that value investing is one of the most successful, if not really the most successful way to invest for the long run. I find that a lot of people, you know, don't have a philosophy, so there really isn't any true north that they're that they're really espousing. Um, another difference, or another thing that I would suggest anybody look for in their sort of investment professional or money person, uh, besides the things that we've already talked about, is um, is their approach in terms of, in our case, you know, we take very much an educational type approach as opposed to a sales type approach, and I would definitely recommend that people screen for that. So, you know. When they're talking to their advisor, they really should be pro their you know potential advisor candidates. They should be probing to see what is the dominant sort of mode through which they're trying to serve their clients. Are they really taking a view of trying to be an educator or a mentor, or are they really trying to take a, maybe a very different approach? Uh, so those are definitely some of the other criteria. Obviously, also one should look at the track record. Uh, many many uh, money managers. Uh, or financial advisors don't actually offer a track record, whereas you know, ma you know, many do. I would certainly scrutinize the person's track record, but I would view that as just one piece of the puzzle, and probably not even the most important piece. Uh, but you know, if those other aspects are there, then you know, the track record should, I think, be a reflection of that, as opposed to the other way around, where people sometimes are inclined to chase a track record. Uh, rather than uh, really trying to look at the whole
package of how was the track record generated, the quality of the people involved, uh, the backgrounds, and so on and so forth. Maybe that dovetails into my next question for you on understanding the differences between the types of people that exist in the world to serve the affluent business seller. Uh, brokerage firms, you know, the Merrill Lynch's of the world, RIA firms like yours and mine, family offices, and, and other people that are out there advising clients about investments, insurance advisors, you know, they run the full gamut. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, some of them can produce this track record, some of them can't. But maybe you could describe a little bit about what, what are the distinctions between those groups and are they relevant to someone that's out shopping, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are good people in every different type of a package, but maybe the proportions are a little bit different. Um, as far as ourselves, you know, we're set up as what's called an RIA, which stands for Registered Investment Advisor. And all that really means is that we are authorized due to our status um, as a RIA to offer investment advice to clients for a fee. Uh, so, you know, we charge a fee that we disclose up front to provide the services of managing people's money in, in an intelligent fashion, utilizing the research and the professional talent and experience that we have accumulated in order to sort of help people invest their assets and generate a reasonable return with the risk profile that they're looking for. So that's the RIA firms. Um, the brokerage firms, or, or what's also called a broker-dealer, they're really the firms that tend to have uh, representatives that you know, also are advisors in a sense. Often they work more on a commission basis rather than a fee-only basis. Um, generally they're larger and they're generally a little more sales-oriented than most RIA firms are. Um, and then as far as, you know, family offices and things, you know, that's really more of the type of thing that individual families who are usually ultra-high net worth sometimes establish those. But again, as an RIA firm, you know, we there's this concept of the multifamily office, and so we kind of fall a little bit into that category. So the other thing I would say is that there is somewhat more of an overlap between these different factors. Uh, but, uh, you know, from my point of view, and obviously I'm a little bit biased, I think that, you know, certainly wealthier and sophisticated people after an exit should really be looking for people who are independent-minded and who are fee-only or primarily fee-based as the core of where they're going to seek advice, I believe that that you know, minimizes conflicts of interest and I think in the long run would tend to lead to a far better result. Uh, you know, but that having been said, you know, there are great advisors at brokerage firms and in other formats as well. Uh, but I do, I do think that the world is shifting much more towards the RIA model and has been really for the, net, for the last several decades. Yeah, I just read a statistic that 50% of millionaires now work with registered independent advisory firms like uh, like yours and mine, and I think that trend's continuing. Um, maybe you could describe, you know, what are some of the distinctions, uh, you know, like a fiduciary standard or, um, you know, things like that that might be important to an investor that they might not understand, and some of the legislation that's trying to go on recently with, duties to the clients is that is that something you could talk about a little I mean I can I, I you know I think it gets a lot of, it gets a little confusing for a lot of people and some of these distinctions are a little bit finer distinctions that sometimes have importance and sometimes don't but I think to put it in very simple terms uh, 
the sales-oriented organizations, and I would put brokerage firms and insurance firms largely in those categories, though sometimes there are exceptions, but largely in those categories. Um, they operate under what you had hinted at, uh, sort of a, a suitability standard, which simply means that they have a lower bar that they have to clear before they can sell a product to a client. And since they're generating commissions, uh, you know, there's a lot of instances that have been documented in those circumstances where clients were sold things that really ultimately were not uh, appropriate for them. But that because of that suitability standard, that lower bar that they have to clear, you know, they were, they were able to do that. Registered investment advisors overall um, uh, generally operate under a higher standard called the fiduciary standard where they really are required to think about whether a particular uh, approach is is uh, is right for the client, uh, so they have to act as a fiduciary, really act in the best interest of the client, which is often not the case in that other model. But you know, even if that weren't the case, I think registered investment advisors, due to the technology changes that have happened, you know, they tend to do things which just make a lot more sense. They're more transparent. There's more separation of the various components of the services that they provide. There's more transparent disclosure of what the fees are that the client's ultimately actually going to pay. Uh, whereas in that other model, the fees are often hidden, which doesn't mean you're not paying them. You may not, they may not be invoiced to you, but you often end up paying more in that other model. And you know, those who are ignorant of it, they don't think that they're paying anything, but then ultimately what happens is as those fees, those hidden fees are taken out and accumulating, you know, they're ultimately going to see less value of their account because the fees are being paid, they're just being hidden. Whereas in the transparent model, you know, it's disclosed. Here's the fee that you're paying, here's the services that you're getting, and it gives you a lot more ability to decide for yourself whether you're getting the value that you were hoping for from a given level of fees that you're paying. So I think you could look across a number of different metrics. Uh, I would say to most people that the RIA model, in my opinion at least, and you know, the caveat is I'm an RIA. Obviously, I've set it up this way because I think it makes sense. So my view is probably somewhat biased. But I, I think that most people really should be looking at the RIA model very carefully because I think that the various characteristics, including the transparency and the unbundling, are really better for people and lead to better results in the long run for the most part. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so uh, another topic that I think people are really concerned about when they're planning an exit and they've seen what's happened over the course of the last few years with some of these large-scale Ponzi schemes and like especially Madoff is, is the biggest one that's come around but you know there's always people out there looking to take your money so aside from screening the advisors in the way that you described what are some of the other things people should be thinking about and how to make sure they protect their wealth from people that are looking to steal it from them well, that's, that's really important. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was Will Rogers that, that quipped that he wasn't so much looking for a return on his money as a return of his money. And I think that in a lot of situations, I mean, people do things, and the Madoff stuff was just one of probably the biggest example, but obviously there have been other schemes like this in the past, where ultimately people quote-unquote invested their money, they didn't even get their principal back. And obviously that's just an unmitigated disaster and one that really should be avoided at almost any cost. So I think that, you know, there's a number of things that one can do. 
as an aside, um, I knew two people that had, uh, well, actually three, that had lost money with the Madoff scam. And in two cases, I wasn't aware of, you know, that they, I didn't even know these people when they made those investments. But in one case, I was approached by a friend of mine who um, had considered investing in that with us. And unfortunately for him, ultimately invested with Madoff. Now, when he described to me how great Madoff was, and I'd never heard of Madoff before this, but this was circa 2005-ish, uh, so well before the scam was uncovered. The way he was describing the financial characteristics of this investment immediately set off red flags. So, you know, one of the things is just very simple is if it's too good to be true, which essentially any, anybody who promises you that they can make returns when other people can't or they're always right and the market is, you know, up and down, that just doesn't meet the basic tense sense of logic. Like there's a lot of really smart people with great backgrounds and a lot of money looking for a small investment edge. So I just think it's highly unlikely that somebody sort of off the reservation would suddenly have discovered some, you know, black box or magic box that allows them to do what nobody else is able to do. So I think that that's a huge red flag. So I think the corollary with that is the idea that, you know, you don't really need, you know, especially if those people like the, that are listening to our podcast where they've already generated substantial wealth, I don't think one needs to get too greedy and, and try to chase astronomical type returns. I, I think that following those basic rules of investing that we definitely recommend people follow, that is, you know, basic diversification, investing <clears throat> with some different pools of money that each with a different characteristic, some very, you know, some conservative for income, some for growth, et cetera, and owning businesses that they understand that are really good businesses. Um, and the other thing is, you know, when you're dealing with money managers is, which wasn't done with Madoff and that would have avoided all the problems is insisting on independent third party custodians. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar with that term, and I mean, essentially we as an RIA, we don't really, for the most part, other than one or two private funds that we run, we don't keep the money in-house. We utilize third-party firms, very well-known firms like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade. They, these firms hold all the assets that our clients want us to manage. And our role is simply to supervise and use our investment expertise and research to deploy those assets intelligently. But, you know, the assets are independently held by these firms. There's you know, 50 million of CIPIC and excess coverage there. Um, and, you know, the client independently through the mail will receive their own statements. So in that scenario, you know, it's, I mean, I'm not aware of a circumstance uh, with, you know, trillions of dollars in those platforms of anybody actually losing, you know, their account or money disappearing. Whereas, uh, you know, and if it were to happen, it would be covered by these firms, which have substantial resources. You know, that's, that's very simple. Uh, it's something anybody can do, and most RIAs do, which would have avoided all these problems. Um, so, you know, there's a number of factors, but I think the main ones to boil it down is make sure that the thing that you're investing in sort of meets the smell test and isn't too good to be true. And secondly, insist on sort of third-party verification and, uh, and, and these third-party custodians to actually hold your money so that there really isn't any opportunity for people to abscond with those assets. I think that a lot of misery could have been avoided if people would have just followed those two basic rules. Great advice. Anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap our call? Um, 
Well, we didn't really get we get to go into a lot of details, but you know, I think that anybody who's interested in investing should study carefully the the example of Warren Buffett and and sort of this why value investing makes a lot of sense. So that's one thing I would definitely say. And the other thing I would say is that you know, good investing the way we do it and maybe some others also do it can be an incredibly powerful ally to people. You know, even well before they even do an exit, you can accumulate substantial wealth just taking some of the cash flow from your business and diverting it into investment accounts that already start implementing the type of strategies that we're talking about. One could build substantial wealth, but then obviously post an exit uh, where the, the liquid wealth can jump substantially, uh, I would definitely tell people that they really ought to look at these types of strategies and these types of approaches because, you know, in 20 years of experience looking at a lot of different options, uh, I believe that the Buffett model and the value investing approach is really right at the very top in terms of the types of risk-adjusted results that people can get. And, I, you know, for many people who've pursued this type of approach over time, you know, it has produced pleasing results, uh, you know, obviously including all those original investors that uh, invested with Buffett. Uh, but, you know, even if you can generate just reasonable, steady compounding, the results end up being quite excellent over the long run. So if our listeners have an interest in learning about value investing but maybe don't want to do the research themselves, is that, is that something you offer? Is that something you could uh, speak to them to? Does, does you offer any resources for that on your website? Yeah, well, we, we have, uh, you know, our website, RidgewoodGRP.com, as well as IndexValue.com has a number of resources. Um, as I had touched on earlier, you know, our firm takes very much an educational-oriented approach to, um, you know, building client awareness and client goodwill. So, you know, along with you guys and, and other firms, we've done a number of different educational events. There's a number of books. You know, if you go to our website under the Food for Thought link, you'll see links to some books. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there are obviously some people who really want to learn a lot about it, uh, but, you know, the majority of people, certainly the majority of our clients, they get to a point where they really want somebody else to do it for them. And our value proposition is that, you know, hopefully we, we strive and actually succeed and, uh, you know, with no effort on their part, just the effort to find us and to make the decision to kind of utilize our services that they can basically benefits of value investing without doing all the hard work, you know, which is a lot of hours involved. That's the best solution I find. So, uh, Ken, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where should they visit? So they can go to um, uh, RidgewoodGRP.com, which is our main website. And then, uh, you know, our main number is 973-544-6970. I'm at extension 1 if they want to reach out or by email, info, I-N-F-O, at RidgewoodGRP.com. Great. I want to thank Ken Modulor, the Chief Investment Officer of Ridgewood Investments, which is a businessweek.com top 50, 50, 50, top 50 independent advisor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. 
Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.